The question that is asked about the Sharia is as follows. A friend of mine asked me, he said that many Muslim countries are uh, the Pew survey, uh, which incidentally um, does not give us sample size, it does not give us demographic, uh, it does, there's just one uh, graph which uh, looking at it from the perspective of surveys really has no value. But be that as it may, there is at least this overall feeling that Muslim countries and the people in Muslim countries want the Sharia to be to become the uh, law of the land. And the question that gets asked is that if if that happens, then what will happen to the non-Muslims living in those countries? How can you have the Sharia as the law of the land in a country which is which may be which may have a Muslim ruler, uh, but which has a population that is not Muslim. How will they fare in this uh, whole thing? Now, it's very important to understand the context of, first of all, what is known as the Sharia. The Sharia is usually written in these big letters as if it is some humongous, unmovable, unchangeable a uh, body of law that is written in stone uh, and nobody can change that. First and foremost, that concept itself is um, completely faulty. The Sharia has two parts to it. There is a divine part of the Sharia which is legislated in the Quran, uh, which is the word of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which is the word of God, and that is not changeable. Uh, some, of it, some of it also is laws which have been given to us by the Prophet Muhammad wasallam, peace be on him, uh, which is also not changeable because he was also interpreting from God himself. However, there is a huge body of the Sharia, which is what we call juristic law. A juristic law is laws which have been subsequently uh, created by jurists in Islam, uh, which are people, scholars of uh, great eminence and great scholarship, who created laws depending on the times and the demands of the time, uh, but based on the fundamental principles of law as defined in the Quran and the Sunnah, which is the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam, peace be on him. So the principle of juristic law is that the jurists, and this is um, time independent, so this can happen at any point in time. Um, jurists have the um, power and the right to create laws but within the basic fundamental principles of Islam. For example, to give you just an example, now take banking. Islam categorically prohibits, as part of the divine law, categorically prohibits the taking or paying of interest. 
So that is the boundary within which to work. So now if you start a bank and you say this, I want that this to be an Islamic bank, um, because people need uh, money, they need funding. Someone needs money for personal reasons, to buy a car, to buy a house and so on, uh, for education, uh, to pay medical bills, uh, as the case may be. Some other person might want money to start a business and so forth. So we are talking about different amounts of money as well. So you say, well, I, I need to start a bank. I'm going to start a bank. Now, what must I do uh, in terms of commercial banking instruments, commercial banking um, ways and, and, and means? The jurists have created um, possibilities of doing banking, staying within the parameters, the overall parameter of neither paying interest nor giving uh, nor, nor uh, taking interest. So money for money is not permitted, but other ways in which money can be accessed, these are permitted. Those are juristic parts of the law and these change over time and they are very much part of the Islamic Sharia. Similarly, there may be cases, for example, um, take artificial insemination. Uh, you don't have children, you would like to have a child, um, maybe there is, your husband is infertile, now what must I do? Uh, in Islam, there is no adoption in the traditional sense, meaning you can't take a child and give the child your own name, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says the child is entitled to the name of his biological father, and therefore you cannot take that away from him. That is the right of the child. In Islam, the person has the right to retain their, what is called maiden name in uh, English, which is their, the name of their biological father. Uh, a person is entitled to retain that throughout their lives. That is the reason why Muslim women, after they get married, they do not take the husband's name, they retain their own name. Um, if they choose to take the husband's name, that is not haram, it is not prohibited, but they have the right to retain their own identity uh, without changing their name and taking the husband's name as their own name. So therefore, when there is no adoption, what do you do? You still want children. So today we have medical, uh, the medical possibility of saying, okay, let's have, let's do artificial insemination. Now, what is the divine law within which the jurist who is asked this question has to work? The divine law has to do with the issue of adultery, which is a sexual relation between a man and woman who are not married to each other. So now when you are saying that the sperm has to become from a sperm donor, the sperm donor in this case is obviously not a husband. So is this permissible or not permissible? Now, these are the kinds of things where jurists have uh, ruled and they have ruled in the context and within the boundaries of the divine fundamentals of the law. Obviously, one can um, look at many examples and say that the divine law of Islam uh, came in the 7th century and the world obviously changes and has changed. So over time, uh, there will be uh, new situations that emerge, uh, new demands of uh, life, of society, of uh, challenges that we face. And so we have a law which must be dynamic, uh, which must be changeable, 
but obviously it must not uh, tamper with the fundamental principles of the religion itself uh, because we believe that God knows better than we do. We believe that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is our creator and our sustainer and he knows what is right and wrong and whatever he decrees is for our benefit, it's not for his benefit because he is beyond harm and benefit for, for, for anyone to cause him harm or benefit. So this is one. Second thing is that Islamic Sharia or Islamic law is based on the fundamental principle of justice. The ayat of um, Suratul Surah Nisa, which is the fourth surah in the Quran, and ayah is number 135. Uh, please refer to that. Where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, O oh, you who believe, stand up as witnesses to Allah. Allah is not holding anyone else in between. He's saying, O oh, you who believe, stand up as witnesses to Allah, even if it is against yourselves. Meaning, if you have committed a mistake, own up. Don't try to justify it. Don't say, well, you know, I'm Muslim, different rules. There are no different rules in Islam. So Allah says, stand up as witnesses to Allah, uh, even if it is against yourselves and against the, uh, your closest people, your parents, your brothers and sisters, your relatives, whoever. Right? And this whole ayah goes all to the end. Allah SWT says, Allah is the better protector of you than any of them. So don't fear them. Don't fear their displeasure. Uh, don't fear becoming unpopular with them. Stand up for the truth. No matter what the truth is, no matter how uncomfortable it is, no matter how dangerous it is, stand up for the truth. And that's the reason why the Prophet ﷺ, he said that the peak of Iman, the peak of faith, is to speak the truth before the tyrant. So he says, even if you are standing before a king who might take your head off if you spoke the truth, he says, speak the truth. If your head has to go, it will go. Because life and death is in the hands of Allah, not in the hand of the tyrant. So he can't harm you, he can't benefit you. That is our iman. So therefore, it is based on the fundamental principle of justice. Now, what is the fundamental principle of justice in Islam? The fundamental principle of justice in Islam is that justice means the same rule, the same law applies to everybody in society irrespective of caste, irrespective of creed, irrespective of religion, irrespective of gender, irrespective of economic disparity, without any exception. This is justice. So if I steal, the punishment for stealing for me is the same as the punishment would be if I was the son of the king. If I did anything wrong, uh, if I uh, raped somebody, if I murdered somebody, uh, if I took away somebody's property, uh, if I usurped my or, or misused my authority, whatever the nature of the crime, the, there is just one punishment. And that punishment, uh, I have explained the issue of uh, criminal law separately in another recording. Please listen to that. Uh, but the basic principle there is that there is no differential punishment for people based on their status, not even on their religion. So in a state in which the Sharia is in force, if a Hindu commits a crime and a Muslim commits a crime, they will get exactly the same punishment. There will be no difference 
in the punishment for the Muslim, it will not be lighter uh, or heavier and that uh, compared to the punishment for the Hindu or the Sikh or the atheist, there's no difference. Same, same crime, same punishment. If there is forgiveness uh, in that crime, if it is possible to be forgiven, then the same forgiveness rule will apply to the Muslim and the non-Muslim. There is no change in that either. This is the basic fundamental principle of Islam, which is justice, meaning the same treatment for everyone, irrespective of any issue, uh, irrespective of anything to do with their ethnicity, with their religion, uh, with their caste. In Islam, there are no castes anyway, and so forth. So this is the one principle. Second thing in, in a Sharia, in a state that is ruled by the Sharia, is that the Sharia gives complete freedom to non-Muslims to practice their religion and to live their lives according to the personal laws of that religion. So, for example, Islam has a certain set of laws of inheritance. Now, for a Hindu or a Christian or a Sikh or whoever, living in a Muslim country administered by the Sharia, uh, which law of inheritance will apply? The law of inheritance which will apply to the Sikh or the Christian or the Hindu is their law of inheritance, not the Islamic law of inheritance. Please understand this very clearly. Um, not only is the Hindu, the Sikh, the Christian, uh, whoever, I'm just naming three religions, uh, the Buddhist, the, uh, you know, whoever. I mean, not only are they permitted to worship their gods, uh, their god is not Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it doesn't matter. Not only will the state permit them to worship their gods, the state will permit them to worship them in whichever way is decreed by their religion. The state will permit them to maintain their churches and their temples and so on and so forth. The state might even help them to do that. The state might even give them money to do that. Uh, the state will permit them to live their lives, to celebrate their festivals and so on. The state will permit them to live their lives according to their personal laws. They will be permitted to marry who they wish according to their rights. They will be, um, as I mentioned already, inheritance and so on and so forth. So, as far as the life of the, the Hindu, the Sikh and the, whoever, the non-Muslim is concerned, in a Islamic country, which is run according to the Sharia, it will mean no change whatsoever. They will continue to live their lives as Hindus, as Sikhs, as Christians, um, as Buddhists, and so forth, uh, displaying all the signs of their religion, meaning that if they are, if they are um, supposed to dress in a certain way, the Sikh will not be told to take his turban off, uh, the Buddhist will not be, uh, you know, forced to take off his robes, and so forth, nothing. <laughs> you can live as you wish, or dress as you wish, uh, eat, uh, eat whatever you like, um, with, with, with respect to eating only, there is, uh, there will be some restriction, which is, for example, that it is unlikely that you are going to be able to buy pork freely in a Muslim country. However, um, in the Islamic Sharia, there is permission for people who eat pork to have pig farms and to buy and sell pork, but only to other people like themselves. So a Christian, for example, I mean, Christians are not supposed to eat pork 
go read the Bible. Um, Jesus never ate pork. But that's a different, that's a different discussion. But I'm just saying now that Christians, for example, are permitted to have a pork farm, a pig farm in a Muslim country ruled by the Sharia, um, have a pork shop provided they sell only to Christians. So there may well be some form of monitoring of that to see whether the person is respecting the rule of the land. Uh, but that's it. Similarly, as far as alcohol is concerned, in Islam it is haram. So in uh, a Islamic country which is ruled by the Sharia, a non-Muslim uh, will probably be asked to show his ID before he can buy alcohol um, or alcohol maybe uh, he might be permitted to uh, buy alcohol after he gets a annual permit or something like this. Uh, which we have seen, I mean, even in India, in the days of prohibition, you know, you had to have uh, permits to buy and so on and so on. So, that, those are the only two things. Third thing is, uh, it's not a law as in uh, liable for punishment, but it's, Islam gives a huge amount of uh, scope for uh, consideration of each other or consideration for each other. So, for example, in Ramadan, uh, having a restaurant which is open and working, during the fasting hours is permitted if the restaurant is inside a hotel. But if it's a restaurant on the street, then you are probably going to be told, don't open this restaurant between the hours of fasting and after in the evening and so on, you can do your business. Usually you will find that you will do far more business because Muslims eat a lot in the evenings. But the point is that, that this is about the only uh, restriction that I can imagine. Other than that, there is no restriction whatsoever. Uh, you definitely will not be lynched by a mob of Muslims because you ate pork. I mean, that much I can assure you. Uh, I know uh, you know what I'm referring to. Um, utterly shameless that we have to live with that kind of condition and nobody talks about fairness and nobody talks about how is it possible for a multicultural society to be like this uh, when it is this issue of being lynched for what you eat, believe me, uh, this does not happen in a Muslim country. Um, the, the, the biggest question really seriously to ask is that even today, we have countries which claim to have the Sharia in force. Now, if anyone who understands the Sharia, who knows the law, knows that the Sharia which is in force uh, in those countries is very selective. Mostly it means that the criminal law has been implemented in the civil law, there are all kinds of um, impermissible, um, impermissible things uh, that are allowed. For example, interest-based banking, commercial banking, which is totally prohibited in Islam, is the norm in practically every uh, country which calls itself Islamic, uh, which calls itself Muslim, including Saudi Arabia, including uh, Kuwait and Iraq, and uh, I mean Iraq to has been destroyed, but uh, take Qatar or the UAE or Pakistan or Turkey or Egypt. I mean, Islamic, uh, there is Islamic banking as well, but commercial banking, which frankly, if there was the Sharia in force, the first thing to be banned should have been commercial banking, interest-based banking, but it is well and strong. However, you will find the hudud, the issue of uh, the criminal punishments being meted out. Um, there again, ask yourself, how many 100 people have you encountered 
in a Muslim country. Um, second question to ask is this, that, and you can, this are, these are verifiable figures. If you look at the number of Indians, I'm talking only about Indians now, if you look at the number of Indian Muslims and compare them to the number of Indian Hindus, only Hindus, I'm not even talking about Indian Christians, because they are also a huge number, but just the Hindus and Muslims. If you compare the number of Indian Muslims living in all of these GCC countries, so Saudi Arabia, Oman, Qatar, uh, UAE, uh, Bahrain, and uh, Kuwait, uh, if you compare the accounts, the number of Indian Muslims living in these countries put together and compare them with the number of Hindus in these countries, the number of Hindus far outnumbers the Muslims living in those countries. Simple question to ask is why if Islamic law and Islamic countries are really so bad, then why are Hindus living in those countries? I mean, they are most welcome to come back to India. Uh, especially uh, if the desire of the current dispensation goes through, you, you will have a uh, Hindu Rashtra in this country. What do you think will happen? Hmm? I'm willing to, uh, I mean, gambling is not permissible in Islam, but uh, I'm really willing to take bets uh, if somebody wants to give some odds on the number of Hindus uh, who are working in these GCC countries who will resign their jobs and come back to India. And I mean, who are we fooling? Seriously ask ourselves this question, who are we fooling? So the point is that obviously something is good, something is going for them. Not only are those people, are those Hindus and Christians and Sikhs living and working in those countries, in the GCC countries, but speak to them. I mean, you know them. Many of them are your relatives. Uh, so speak to them. Ask them if they are happy. They are not only happy, they, many of them are second generation, third generation, fourth generation. They, the only reason that they come back to India, and most of them don't even come back to India, from the GCC when they retire, they go off to America, they go off to Canada, they go off to Australia. Majority of them do that. Very few come back to India, but the only reason they leave that place is because these countries don't give citizenship to foreigners. And there's a very good reason they don't give citizenship to foreigners. It's not that they hate foreigners. The whole country runs on, on foreigners. They don't give citizenship to foreigners because these countries are very small. And already, in many of them, the expats outnumber uh, the locals. So now if they also gave them citizenship, you would just end up having uh, completely changing the demographic of the land. Uh, no country can afford to do that. So obviously they don't do that, but while they are there, these people have, uh, whoever working there, both, in, both Hindus and Muslims and Christians and Sikhs and, and everybody, they have the best of uh, life, they have great salaries, they have a beautiful, clean environment, um, they would have to go a long way and they would still not find it to find somebody defecating or urinating in public, uh, they can dream about seeing a cow uh, on the road, but that dream will never come true. Um, they can uh, dream about seeing heaps and dumps of garbage, but that dream will not come true either. So this is the, this, this issue, the lifestyle. They have a beautiful lifestyle. They have great infrastructure. Uh, they're living a clean, in a clean environment. 
they are very happy and you don't have to take my word for it please go travel the land meet people ask them questions yourself and you will understand uh, what it is about muslim countries and islamic law which is so attractive so the question this is a long answer to the short question what will happen to non muslim minorities in a country if that country applies the sharia as the law of the land the short answer is nothing will happen to them they will be able to live their lives peacefully harmoniously beautifully according to their own religions following their own laws and they will in, on the other hand because of islamic sharia because of islamic law they will have a law abiding uh, environment they will be practically no crime and they will have a a clean and beautiful environment because that's what the sharia orders saudi arabia is probably the uh, only place uh, in the world and this is true for many other countries but in truly for where you can just leave your car unlocked and walk away and uh, it won't go anywhere you know um, this is the this is the uh, this is the uh, outcome of the deterrent punishment uh, that islam islam prescribes so anyway that is the the long story of it uh, i hope this makes some sense i hope i make myself clear i ask allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to accept it and to make this clear for us i my purpose of doing all this is so that we can bring hearts together so that we can dispel ignorance and prejudice and stereotyping and transfer it and uh, change it for truth uh, for understanding for mutual respect for non-judgmental thinking uh, and open our hearts to each other thank you very much